X-Ray. Hi, everybody. I'm Kira Klingenberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg. Welcome to episode two of Everything is Interesting, the listening questions. Listener questions. <laughs> the listening that's questions. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> Today, we'll continue finding answers to the insightful and curious science questions submitted to us from the students in Mrs. Pace's sixth grade class at Pleasant Valley Middle School in Vancouver. Thank you again to everyone who submitted a question. And with us today is Jefferson Smith. Hi, Jefferson. Hi. All right. To start us off today, we have two questions that sort of go together. Jefferson, take it away. Dylan C. wants to know, how was the Earth made? And Nathan N. wants to know, why is the Earth's axis tilted? Ah, uh, great question. And both the answers can be find, found out in space-time and in the story of the formation of our solar system. So Dylan C. and Nathan N. Here is how our planet was formed and came to orbit the sun, and also why it doesn't orbit the sun in a straight up-and-down fashion. Cue the space music! Let's start with what we know so far. And I say so far because there's still so much we have yet to understand. But let's, I don't know, start at the beginning of all things. At the time when all matter in the entire universe was smashed together into a singular point in space that was infinitely small and infinitely dense, and also super duper mega hot. So we call this point the singularity, and it was full of quantum particles. It's what we know quantum particles hate to sit still, and so the amount of energy contained in the singularity started to fluctuate until the whole thing exploded in a big bang. Surprise! Okay, this big bang as such sent matter and energy hurtling outwards, creating time and space as we know it. The singularity essentially contained the entire universe, all in one little thing, and then the Big Bang unleashed it. As they hurtled towards space, some of these tiny pieces of matter began hanging out together as big swirling clouds of gas and dust. And in one of these clouds, the solar nebula, was the beginnings of our solar system. About five billion years ago, a nearby event like a supernova or a passing star caused the solar nebula dust cloud to begin collapsing in towards the center. And as it collapsed, it spun faster and faster, taking the shape of a large disk. Hot, dense material like helium and hydrogen accumulated in the center of the solar nebula disk. The cooler, less dense parts spun out towards the edges of the disk. There they began to clump together, forming little spheres that we call the adorable name of planetesimals. And as they got larger, they became protoplanets. Protoplanets. All that hydrogen and all that helium condensing in the center of the solar nebula disk eventually exploded and became the self-burning ball of nuclear fusion we know now as the sun. This event also blew away any random dust and gas that hadn't yet become part of something larger, leaving only the sun, asteroids, and planets, like the Earth, that make up the clean disk-like solar system that we know and inhabit today. So Dylan, from what we understand about physics so far and the beginning of all things, the Earth began, as everything did, as part of the singularity. And after the Big Bang, over billions of years, tiny particles of matter swirling in space clumped together and eventually formed our rocky planet. And, you know, don't forget that we're talking in geological time here. So the Earth is approximately 4.5 billion years old. So all this stuff happened over a huge amount of time. But let, let's go back to the story of Earth's formation and let's answer Nathan's question, which is, why is the Earth's axis tilted? 
So imagine spinning a top out across a table. So like, you know, in your mind's eye, you've got a little top. Woo, there it goes. The axis the top spins around is at a right angle to the table it's spinning on, right? Perpendicular. As, as dust, yeah, there you go. As dust spun out and away from the sun, it accumulated around a central axis as it became a planet. In theory, each planet would then continue to spin around this axis as a, at a right angle to the disc-like plane it travels on, just like the top does along the table. However, Earth spins around an axis that is not at a right angle to the disc-like plane our solar system sits on. It's, it's tilted. But why? Well, at some point during its formation, researchers believe that proto-Earth collided with another proto-planet called Theia. The impact was so great that it knocked Earth's axis of rotation into some sort of crazy wobble. But we aren't wobbling now, and that's because the impact also sent a huge chunk of proto-Earth's crust into space, which got caught in Earth's orbit, and we now call it the Moon. The moon's gravitational pull was so strong that it counteracted the wobbling, and the Earth's rotation stabilized with its axis at 66.5 degrees above the disk-like plane it travels on, rather than the 90-degree right angle that we would expect. Okay, stop the music. That's it for the formation of Earth, so, you know, let's come back down from space, everybody. Ugh, I hate coming back down from space. But wait! What about the basins and the craters and the water and all that stuff on Earth? That's got to do with space, too, so... Let's go back, back to outer space, start the music. Oh, you want to go back? Okay, let's go back to space. You're I always right. want to go back to outer space. We got to talk about the water. Our next question comes from Kylie K. How was the first water formed? Oh, this is a good question. This is a really good question, mainly because the origin of Earth's water is still largely a mystery. Was it always here, you know, on the planet since the formation, or did it arrive much, much later? from space. So scientists long believed that water molecules could never have survived the blazing hot molten conditions during Earth's formation and thought that any water present at the time would have evaporated straight into space. Space. They theorized that the first water must have arrived much later when Earth was more stable, hitchhiking as ice on the backs of meteorites as they collided with our young planet. Pretty dramatic. But recent research, re- recent research has provided evidence <laughs> that at least some water has actually been present on our planet long before the meteors arrived, all the way since the very beginning. In 2015, researchers from the University of Hawaii made a significant discovery. They took a look at rocks from the island of Baffin that are known to have originated deep within the Earth's mantle, around the time of Earth's formation. These rocks are special because they were never exposed to any influences from the Earth's surface. Using instruments called ion microprobes, the researchers scanned the rocks and found minute crystals of glass containing tiny droplets of ancient water. The question was, where did this ancient water come from? To find out, the researchers analyzed the water for the presence of something called <sighs> deuterium. Did I do it? Deuterium? Jefferson, what do you think? Blue. D- d- blue. I think it's deuterium. Deuterium. So deuterium is another form of hydrogen, an element contained in all water, but it is twice as heavy as normal water. We happen to know that the higher the amount of deuterium found in water, the more likely it is that the water came from somewhere else besides Earth. And when they analyzed the tiny ancient water found in the rocks, The researchers found very little deuterium, strongly suggesting that this water was actually present at the same time the Earth itself was formed. So scientists now suspect that the original water molecules on Earth likely began as part of the dust of the solar nebula, which was eventually drawn together to form our planet. 
And even if we had lost much of this original water to evaporation during, you know, the super hot, fiery formation of the planet, some of it survived and still remains to this day. Meteorites may have later brought more water to the planet, but water was likely always a part of the Earth. And even after all this research, we still don't truly have conclusion, uh, conclusive evidence as to where Earth's water originated from. Science is a constant process. New research is always adding evidence to our ever-changing picture of the way things work. And we never know when we might discover something that changes everything and forces us to reevaluate all our previous beliefs. Right, like finding out that the Earth is actually round. Maybe we'll find out that water actually came from... Hold on, the Earth is actually round? Ta-da! Oh, God, I gotta go change everything <laughs> I believe now. But yeah, maybe we'll find out that water actually came, I don't know, from, from, from worms? No, I don't know, I'm just speculating now. Either way, we're glad that water exists on Earth, and no matter how it got here, because where there's water, there can be life. Which leads us to our next question. Our next question comes from Kylie S. What was the first type of plant that was discovered? Okay, so when we heard your question, Kylie, we weren't sure if you wanted to know what we have discovered to be the first type of plant on Earth or what the first type of plant ancient humans ever discovered was. So we decided to tackle both questions. Let's start with what the first type of plant to emerge on Earth was. Cue the plant music. Yes, we love the plant music. Doesn't this just make you feel like spring? All right. As we understand yeah, could it... You, could you read the rest of this question in a British accent, please? N- no. No. <laughs> <laughs> I do such a bad British accent. <laughs> All right. As we understand it, the earliest life dates back to about 3.8 billion years ago. And for the first billion years or so, life was limited to very simple, simple, single-celled beings. Then somewhere in the 3 billion year ago era, little single-celled guys called cyanobacteria... Cyanobacteria. You did it! ...had the necessary body parts for performing photosynthesis. The ability to take chemicals from the air and water and turn it into food in the form of sugar, using energy from the sun. And, and this, this ability to make your own food, it's a super incredible handy superpower to have. So about 1.6 billion years ago, another single-celled organism called a eukaryote... Eukaryote. ...absorbed the cyanobacteria and its <laughs> DNA into its own body, becoming a single entity. And these first cyanobacteria-containing eukaryotic cells probably resembled red algae, which evolved into the plants we see today. Each new algae cell came equipped with the DNA blueprints to build not only its own body, but also the body of the photosynthesizing cyanobacteria that would live inside its body. At this point on the evolutionary timeline, since the cyanobacteria is no longer its own independent life form, we start referring to it instead as a piece of the red algae's single-celled body. So an organ or an organelle known as a chloroplast. Chloroplast. The cells in, in a British accent, please. The cells in the tree outside your window are able to photosynthesize because they contain these little chloroplasts too, which are essentially genetically simplified versions of ancient cyanobacteria. It's like a creature within a creature. A creature within a creature. <laughs> So red algae and eventually, you know, green algae after that lived a pretty uneventful life under the ocean for the next billion or so years until (laughs) until somebody got brave and ventured out of the pond, so to speak, giving rise to the very first land plants. And these plants were small and simple with very shallow roots. They were things like mosses and all the stuff that resembles mosses. And they didn't have seeds or flowers or a vascular system like all the plants of today or, well, most of the plants today. 
It took another 200 million years for the first fairly complex plant, the fern, fern, to show up on the scene. And 100 million years after that for plants to figure out the art of seeds and flowers. On the evolutionary timeline, the emergence of flowers is at about uh, 360 million years ago. That's where we're at. Geological time, man. It's, it's long. So now let's speculate what the first plant was that the first humans would have encountered. So where were humans anyway during all this, you know, billions of years of plant evolution? Well, it turns out that we came in much later on the scene. Much later. Cue the animal music. I also, also British. I also love the animal music. Yeah. <laughs> I'm drinking tea over here. I don't know about you guys. You probably can't have it in the studio. My peak, my peak okay. is up. <laughs> well, the first animal on Earth, a very primitive version of the sea sponge, has theoretically been around since 640 million years ago. Animals didn't begin their lives on land until about 395 million years ago. And guess what? It took almost all of those 395 million years and a whole lot of evolutionary adaptation for those animals who first crawled up onto the land to become us humans. Yay! And we don't know for sure when humans exactly showed up, because it's awfully difficult to pinpoint when the first Homo sapien that had all Homo sapien features was actually born. But we have a good idea that primates that resembled humans first evolved from an ancestor we had in common with chimpanzees some 400, I'm sorry, some 4 million years ago on the continent of Africa. And so we can reasonably assume that the first types of plants encountered by the first human-like species, Australopithecus amensis, would be, <laughs> would be the plants that existed around the same time in Africa. You're not going to try and say that one, Jefferson? Australopithecus. Oh, good. good Ooh, job. check him out. So research shows us that much of Africa was grasslands during the emergence of the human species, and that in fact these grasslands were part of what made it possible for those early human-like primates to evolve into us humans at all. The traits that separate us from other primates, like large brains, flexible diets, complex social groups, and the ability to walk on two legs, only became necessary when vast fields of grass began to take the place of the forest that had covered most of Africa, and our ancestors suddenly had to cover long distances by foot and hunt grass-dwelling creatures. So maybe, maybe, the first plants that the very first humans were aware of was something that resembled tall African grass. I hope that ha helps to answer your question, Kylie S. We did our best. Whoa. It feels like I just learned a lot. Okay, here's the next question. From Lily B. How many endangered species are there? And how can we make more? She, no, she did not ask that. How many endangered species are there was Lily B.'s question. Okay, well, we just learned that life on Earth has undergone billions of evolutionary changes, which is how ocean-dwelling amoebas became more and more complicated creatures over time until adaptations to their environment eventually gave rise to us humans. But not all species that emerge from the genetic pool stick around forever. There are currently 2,328 plant and animal species that are listed as threatened or endangered in the U.S. alone. The title of endangered species is given to those plants and animals that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Department or the National Marine Fisheries Service have determined are in danger of going extinct. These organizations evaluate the species to see if their population is currently facing threats like loss of habitat, overcollection by hunters, diseases, or any other environmental factors. 
Then the Fish and Wildlife Department determine how to best protect the endangered species and allow them to rebuild their population. Often this includes making it illegal to sell or trade the species and protecting the species' habitat from new building construction or toxic chemical waste. Only 78 of all the species listed as endangered have ever been delisted, which is not a very huge percentage. But it is evidence that by being diligent, humans do have the power to positively impact the environment. Yeah, go humans. Go humans. I hope this last question is about the moons of Uranus, because you promised me that last week. <laughs> I, I think it's actually pronounced Uranus. Uranus. But, but that's beside the point. We can, we can say Uranus if you want, if that's more fun. Uranus. <laughs> show for sixth graders, you guys. Behave yourselves. Uranus. Yes. The answer is we will talk about this, because Nikki B. asked us, What's the coldest temperature of Uranus's moons? Okay, to answer this, we need the space music again. Yes. Back to space. Okay. Okay. Uranus has some 27 moons, which is a lot. I mean, okay, true, Jupiter has 53, but like on Earth, we only get one, so 27 is a lot. And all of the moons surrounding Uranus are tiny as far as moons and celestial bodies go. The smallest one is only 8 to 10 miles across. What is that, like the, the, the diameter of the, the Gresham. downtown? Gresham. Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like Gresham <laughs> in a Gresham spherical... A yeah, if Gresham were a spherical moon, that's how small all of these moons are. Gresham is like... I'm not going to say it. All right, so and, and all of the moons of, of Uranus are super dark. They're like a, a black color, which is really hard to see against, you know, the dark black dra- backdrop of space. So the moons are certainly cold because they're all about 1.8 billion miles, B, billion, billion, miles away from the sun. And that's a long way from our central heat source. The planet itself is really cold. Remember, Uranus is a gas planet, so it has no solid surface. Towards the top of the gas clouds, the temperature of Uranus is negative 337 degrees Fahrenheit. Is that also like Gresham, Jefferson? Negative <laughs> Very different from Gresham. <laughs> it's cold, though, guys. It's really cold. Like, we complain when it gets down to, you know, 37 degrees Fahrenheit in the winter here. Well, imagine 300 more degrees colder than that. That's. I'd really rather not, thank you. Yes, that, that's what happens when you're that far from the sun. Okay, well, we have yet to capture any information about any of Uranus's outer moons. But back in 1986, Voyager 2 sent back information suggesting that the inner moons all appear to be comprised of half water ice and half rock. So we can speculate that many of the other moons share a temperature similar to that of Uranus. The only temperature we could find listed for any of the moons in particular was that of the largest, Titania. And its temperature is roughly negative 334 degrees Fahrenheit. That's very cold. Very cold. Very cold. Not quite as cold as the planet itself, but still pretty darn cold. And that's just our best guess. Perhaps, Nikki B, you'll grow up to become the very first human who gets to set foot on one of Uranus's moons. And if that happens, please take a temperature reading and get back to us. Thanks for the question. Yeah. Thanks, guys. That was it. That was that we finally got That's through it. all the we, questions. We did it. We did it. Well, that is a fantastic set of questions. We very much appreciate all of the questions submitted by the sixth grade class. I want to say that if you want to reach the Everything is Interesting team, Kira, where can they find out more? Oh, man, go to our website. Every- I was asking Kira. 
Yeah, he was asking. He was asking Kira. you. Oh, man. Jump the gun. <laughs> Everythingisinteresting.org. Not only can you contact us there and send us some of your burning science questions, you can also find copies of all of our previous shows. Kira, what was your favorite question? Is that at me this time? Yes, Make eye contact, Jefferson. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> My favorite That's question... That's how I feel over here, just sipping my tea in New York. I thought my favorite question was going to be about the moons, just because, you know, space and moons and, and, and temperatures and ooh. But it turns out I actually really liked the um, the question about the first water because it really highlighted how science is ever-changing and, and we never really... What we think we know and what is agreed upon is also something that can be refuted by evidence that we discover much later. And that's, what was that's the great. dumbest question? There were no dumb questions. The d- Except for maybe that one. I thought you were going to say that one. Oh, yeah, that question was the dumbest question. Because oh, I missed it, I missed it. Which one? The one that he just asked, which is what, oh, what was the dumbest Oh, yeah. The only dumb question is which are the dumb questions. Yeah, don't, don't ever stop asking questions, guys, especially you kids out there. I mean, these were some amazing questions. These were awesome. They showed that you were really thoughtful and imaginative and curious, and that is a super awesome thing to, to be. Yeah. I think we're mostly done, but um, can, um, can, can we have the music? Can I have the plant music again? She really likes the plant music. I really like I the plant music. I think you want to be British. Is this, is this something That's that I'm learning about you? We're, right, we're right. not here to get into my inner work. Let's bring we're the plant music back. Plant music and talk about science. <laughs> plant music one last time. <laughs> Ooh, Jefferson, this music really suits you. I like to think I'm a little more Papa Roach. Hey. <laughs> I the way and you're on sitting that there, brilliant note, refined, <laughs> it's time uh, for us to go. It is. <laughs> All right, awesome. I'm Kira Lindenberg. And I am Kira Klingenberg. We will see you guys next week for another episode of Everything is Interesting. Bye, guys. Bye. X-Ray.